everyone, welcome to another episode of The Street Theologian. And today we've reached the last segment of the series of the Sacred Scriptures. We'll be talking about the writings of St. Paul. And it's a really nice coincidence because today is the third Sunday of Ordinary Time. And Pope Francis, a few months ago, in um, a document called Aperuit Illis, talked about how he wanted um, the third Sunday of Ordinary Time to be um, the Sunday dedicated to reflecting and contemplating on the Word of God, which is what, what we'll be doing today. And, um, and yeah, it's a pretty nice coincidence. And a, another nice coincidence is that yesterday was the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, January 25. And today is the Feast of Saints Timothy and Titus, who were priests in the early Christian communities and who worked closely with St. Paul. In fact, St. Paul wrote letters to both of them. So for this podcast, um, first I'd be talking about the life of St. Paul, and then I'll give a brief chronology of his writings. And um, yeah, I'll be talking about some of the major themes that we find in, in these writings. And finally, I'll be, if we have time, um, I can talk a bit about some of the other Catholic epistles. Okay, so let's start with the life of St. Paul. Um, most of the information that we know about St. Paul, we know from the Acts of the Apostles and from what he wrote about himself in some of his letters, for instance, in Galatians. Um, from, from his letters, those moments when he would talk about his own conversion, these are also part of our of our, our sources um, about his life. So St. Paul must have been born around the 5th or up to the 10th AD. We have those um, this range of years. And he must have been born in a practicing Jewish family because he was educated in the law, in the Torah, and he was educated in the school of Gamaliel, as he himself says. Gamaliel was a very prominent Pharisee at that time. Pharisees were basically scholars of the law, scholars of sacred scripture. I remember someone using as an analogy, um, saying that for Paul to say that he was educated in the school of Gamaliel, it's like someone today saying that he was um, educated by by Joseph Ratzinger, or I don't know, um, some (laughs) physics dude saying that he was educated by Einstein. So um, it's it's, it's supposed to show that he he knew his stuff because he had a great teacher, um, that he was a good Jew, basically. And aside from that, we also know that he's a Roman citizen. We know this from the Acts of the Apostles. He would claim his rights as a Roman citizen when he was um, brought to prison by the Roman Empire. And the Roman authorities did respect this claim to citizenship. Because some speculate that probably Tarsus, the place where he was born, must have been a city that was set free. And so because of having collaborated with the Emperor Octavian in some battle. Um, and so the residents of Tarsus were given um, Roman citizenship. Um, I don't know the exact details, but uh, but we do know that um, St. Paul was a Jew and he was also a Roman citizen. And aside from that, he was also well-versed in Greek culture. In fact, um, the name Paul, because St. Paul's name is Saul. That's his Hebrew name. But Paul, it's like a, a Greek version of Saul. Um, which is Paulus in Greek. So you could say that um, Paul was a man of three worlds. He he was completely immersed in these three worlds. He was a Jew, a good Jew, um, and he was a Roman citizen. He knew Roman culture. He died in Rome, as I'll say later. Um, 
and and he was immersed in Greek culture like most Jewish citizens at the, at that time. Um, and being a good practicing Jew, um, when the this new movement called Christianity began began to gain a, a very strong following among many of the Jews at that time, he was quite scandalized. He didn't understand. Um, Christianity completely and he got um, he was angry at the Christians and in fact he collaborated in persecuting the Christians um, until one day on his way to Damascus and he was about to go to Damascus precisely in order to run after the Christians and and persecute them on his way to Damascus suddenly he heard a, a voice um, telling him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and that was that was his conversion. Um, at first, he couldn't see. He, he became blind. He was blinded by the light that he saw that came along with the voice. It came along with his thunderous voice, and um, until he met another guy named Ananias, who gave him back his sight and who baptized him into Christianity. So it's a very radical conversion from someone who was killing Christians to. To a Christian himself, and and eventually he died for Christianity. Um, so after his conversion, he dedicated the rest of his life to evangelizing, to spreading the word of God to the Gentiles, those who were were far apart from from the from the Jewish faith, and. This goes to show that um, Paul himself was convinced of the universality of the message of Christ. That it's not just something um, limited to the Jews, but it's something that's meant to be spread all over the world. So he he did several voyages. Um, the first voyage must have been around the years 46 to 49 AD. And then he also went to Jerusalem where he met up with St. Peter and some of the other apostles and the first Christians and he participated in the Council of Jerusalem. Council is a meeting among the the members of, of the church hierarchy um, in order to resolve certain issues. And in the Council of Jerusalem, um, the question that they resolved was the question of whether it was necessary to continue with Jewish practices for for Christians. That is, to paraphrase it a bit, if the Gentiles who converted to Christianity needed to adhere to the Jewish customs that the Jews who became Christians were practicing. So at that time, the um, it was not so easy to draw the line between Jewish practices and, and Christianity. Um, because we do know that Christianity is not a rejection of Judaism. In fact, it's a... It's a continuity. It's part of its continuity, and it completes it. But at the same time, practices such as circumcision, um, such as abstinence from certain types of food, etc., which were you might call accidental practices, meaning they weren't essential to the Jewish faith. Um, it was not so clear whether it was necessary to adhere to these practices or not. But then, in the Council of Jerusalem, in fact, they decided that. Um, the faith of Christianity is much more universal and it wasn't necessary for Gentiles to adhere to such Jew- such practices that were that were spread widespread in in Jewish culture and then after the Council of Jerusalem he went on a second voyage 
from 50 to 52 AD, and he went to several places to Antioch, Galatia, Troade, Philippia, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Antioch. Yeah, he, he went back to Jerusalem again. And then he did a third voyage around 54 to 58 AD. Um, some say that he must have gone back to to Jerusalem from 58 to 60 AD. And then from 60 to 62 AD, he became a captive in Rome. Um, he was on house imprisonment and and in fact um, in a small church near Piazza Navona around 15 minutes away walking from Piazza Navona there's a small church that is believed to be the place where St. Paul was on house arrest and he where he wrote his captivity letters and in fact there's a in one area of the church um, there's a sign that says that here here's, here was the room of St. Paul and then after that, he got out of prison and there's some speculations that he must have traveled to Spain around 62 to 64 AD because in some of his letters, he did indicate a an intention to go to Spain. Although it doesn't seem to be evident that he wrote anything from Spain. And finally, he was imprisoned again in Rome, but this time this imprisonment ended up in his execution um, outside of Rome around 64 to 68 AD. And... According to tradition, he was beheaded in an area outside of the walls of Rome in Via Ostiense. And in the 4th century, um, Saint, well, Saint, <laughs> the Emperor Constantine built a, a church on top of what was believed to be the, the tomb of Saint Paul. And, and now there's a church there, it's called Saint Paul Outside the Walls. And in the middle of the church, you have the tomb of Saint Paul. With um with his sarcophagus, um. Okay, so so that's the life of Saint Paul. Um, now I'll be talking about the chronology of his writings. So there are fourteen letters that are part of the body of the Pauline writings. These are the two letters to Thessalonians, um, written around the fiftieth and fifty two A.D probably from Corinth and which were the first letters to be written and probably the, the oldest um, texts of the New Testament, so these are 1, 2 Thessalonians. And then in Ephesus, from Ephesus during his second voyage, he wrote three letters, which were the first and second letters to the Corinthians and the letter to the Galatians. And then from Corinth, he wrote the letter to the Romans, um, and while he was in Rome, he wrote the letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, Philippians, and the letter to Philemon around 60 to 62 AD. And these are called the captivity letters because he was in prison. And from the letters, it could be deduced that he was writing within the context of, um, of a prison. And, and finally, his last letters are the first two letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus. Um, yeah, around 62 to 64 AD. The letter to the Hebrews, which was written much later, um, is considered to be part of Pauline writings because the content that is found in the letter is has a continuity with the content of St. Paul's writings. But 
there's a general agreement among many Bible scholars that it wasn't written directly by St. Paul himself, but obviously obviously by, by a Christian who was obviously following church tradition. Um, we'll be talking about the letter to the Hebrews later. Um, well, the structures of the letters are pretty similar. First, there's a prescriptio where St. Paul gives a brief introduction, some greetings, um, it's like the introduction to the whole letter. And then another part called the exordio, in which he exhorts um, the public of his letter towards um, living the faith well, being faithful, um, yeah, eh, having a more, living their moral uprightness, etc. And then this is usually followed by a doctrinal part in which he delves into some of the theological meanings of um, Christian practices and the life of Christ. And some of the main themes in the doctrinal part are sin and justification, um, salvation, um, yet yeah, charity. Later on, we'll be talking about some of these themes. Um, perhaps one of the main ideas that um, come up when we talk about St. Paul's writings is the idea of sin and justification. In fact, um, for Martin Luther, for instance, his own doctrine on sin and justification was supposed to have been inspired by his reading of St. Paul. The difference is that um, the Lutheran interpretation of St. Paul um, has a tendency to view justification as something external, as um, well, justification is basically the passage from the state of sin to the state of grace. But for me, Lutheran reading of St. Paul, he interprets this as something merely external, that um, God decides to make us just, not because we really are good, not because he changes us interiorly, but because he has decided to to close his eyes from, from our sins, or rather to... to um, put a blind eye on the wrong things that we've done. Whereas for St. Paul, um, I guess the coincidence between Luther and Paul is the idea that justification is by faith and that it is, it's Christ who justifies us, not the law. It's something, it's an idea that we find um, very strongly emphasized in St. Paul and to some extent also in, in Luther. But the difference is that for, for Luther, as I said, um, this justification is something external. And for Luther, he took the whole idea of being justified by faith as um, saying that faith alone is what saves. However, we know that it's not just faith that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. Um, well, Luther did have a point in the sense that faith is what saves us, not the law. It's not the compliance of a certain list of do's and don'ts that saves us, but our faith. But at the same time, it's not a an act of voluntarism that I decide to believe and so I am I am saved. No, it's it's Christ who gives the first step, and faith finds its completion in in charity and in, in actions. Um, for Saint Paul, in fact, um, faith and works form a unity. Mm. We are saved by our faith in Christ. We are saved by Christ and in our faith in Christ. And the salvation manifests itself in works. Um, and this is something that we see also in the letter to St. James. Mm. 
the theme of sin and justification is something that we find most heavily emphasized, so to speak, in the letters to the Romans and and Galatians. Um, the letter to the Romans was written mainly for the Jewish community that was living in Rome at that time. And again, St. Paul emphasizes the priority of faith and the justification of the sinner. In fact, in chapters 3 and 4 in the letter to the Romans, he used Abraham as an example. It's an example of someone whose faith in God's promise saved him. And in chapters 5 and 6, he deals with the topic of sin. Um, St. Paul says that in Adam, all have sinned, and so all are in need of justification. So this sort of um, underlines the doctrine of original sin and in its propagation, that original sin um, affects the entire humanity by saying that in Adam, we, we have all sinned. Um, but in chapter 6, um, St. Paul explains how in baptism we die with Christ to sin in order to be raised up with him into life. So here we see the figure of Christ as a new Adam, in the same way that in Adam all have sinned, in Christ all have been raised to life. In chapter 7 deals with the law. And here Paul affirms that the law is holy, just, and good, and makes us known what sin is. And so he doesn't actually reject the law. In fact, for someone who was trained in the law all his life, um, Paul knew the, the value of the law. So he affirms its goodness. However, this knowledge of good and evil is not sufficient to actually do the good. Um, and so we see here the necessity of grace. And in chapter 8, St. Paul discusses life in the Spirit, which enables us to live as sons in the Son and to triumph over the slavery of the flesh. Um, in the letter to the Galatians, um, again, this letter deals with the same topics of sin and justification, but it's more of a reaction to the Galatians' attitude of fulfilling the prescriptions of the law in order to be saved. So there was an attitude of what you might call um, voluntarism, thinking that salvation depends on them doing something, fulfilling this list of do's and don'ts. And Paul upbraids them, and he insists that the law falls on the Son who incarnated, died, and resurrected for us. And his death was by the law, and his resurrection was caused by the Father. St. Paul says that with Christ, I too am crucified because I no longer live according to the law. When he says that I no longer live according to the, according to the law, he's not um, saying that the law is bad. Again, you have to read this in context in the context of um, the rest of what he says about the law. He actually affirms the goodness of the law, but to say that I no longer live according to the law sort of affirms that the law is something secondary compared to um, the work that Christ does in me. So the primacy of God's action is emphasized. And yeah, faith in Jesus Christ is what justifies us, not the law. And again, the example of Abraham's faith is given, which is attributed to him as justice. So the just man lives by faith and not just by fulfillment of the law. Um, okay, now I'd like to talk about some of the major topics of the letter to the Corinthians. Um, we can say that the three major topics of the first letter to the Corinthians are the Eucharist, which is in chapter 11, um, the church, and the resurrection of Christ as the firm foundation of our faith. So, so as regards the Eucharist, um, the first letter to the Corinthians contains one of the narratives of the institution of the Eucharist, confirming that it was instituted by Christ himself and that it is sacrificial in nature, and that the true presence of Jesus Christ are under the species of bread and wine. 
And it also talks about the relationship between the sacramental body of Christ and his mystical body, which is the church. So this is where he transitions to the second major theme, which is the church. In describing the church, um, Pope, uh, Pope Paul <laughs> calls it the body of Christ, since it was founded by him, and Christ is the head of this body. Um, and it's also the people of God. And yeah, the people of God because it belongs to God. Mm. And finally, the third theme, which is about the resurrection in Christ. Um, it affirms that the resurrection of Christ in the first place is the firm foundation of our faith. That if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. And, and this, in turn, is the foundation for the resurrection of the rest of mankind. Since um, Christ shows us um, how we will be when we die, that we will have spiritual bodies. And the second letter to the Corinthians deals mainly with the apostolic ministry which is discussed in chapters 1 to 7. And the apostles are seen as the pillars of the church, and Paul defends his apostleship against those who deny it. And he also insists on the idea that the ministry of the apostle is something that's received by Christ. And it's not an invention of Paul's, that he became an apostle because Christ chose him. So this is a very important element when we think about... Um, the role of apostles within the church or the role of the church hierarchy, for instance. It's not a, um, a position of merit, but it's something that um, you don't get there because you were such a good person and you, you did such um, marvelous deeds and so you merit to be an apostle. No, it's Christ who chooses his apostles and you can be as bad as St. Paul so to speak, bad, um, in the sense that he was persecuting Christians before Christ decided to make him an apostle. Mm. Next, I'd like to talk about the major content of the par of the letter to the Thessalonians. And we could say that um, the main theme of the letters to the Thessalonians, one and two, is the parousia, or the second coming of Jesus in glory. And in the first letter, Paul calls for vigilance and you get the idea that the second coming is, is imminent. However, in the second letter, Paul talks about two major themes, um, the justice of God and judgment. And here, in the second letter, Paul clarifies that there are two aspects to eschatology. The first is the personal encounter with the Lord, which is imminent. Like when you die, then you, you encounter the Lord. And then finally, at the end of time, you have the second coming of the Lord, when he will be together, when he will bring together the living and the dead. And in the meantime, Paul says that we must work to live until the second coming of the Lord. And so this letter sort of clarifies these two levels of eschatology. Um, first, at the individual level, that is what happens to you as an individual when you die, the particular judgment. And the second, which is the collective level, which is what happens to the entire creation at the end of time. And the public victory of the church, the resurrection of the bodies, and the so-called new heavens and the new earth. Um, and finally, let's talk a bit about the letter to the Hebrews. Um, this letter deals mainly with the priesthood of Jesus, and it seems that its readership are Hebrew converts to Christianity, most likely from Levite families or priestly families. The intent of the letter is to transform the institutions of the Old Testament into those of the New Testament. As I said earlier, as regards authorship, um, it is 
unlikely fall because um although the content is in continuity with Pauline content um the style is very different from the letters from the style of the letters of St Paul and there are speculations that it could have been someone from the school of Alexandria um because the use the style is very alexandrian the use of allegory which is prominent in the letter and also in this letter there's a reference to timothy and he calls timothy a brother whereas saint paul in his letter to timothy would call him son in his pastoral letters and and also because the letter to the hebrews must have been written um later like around 95 a.d because for instance um, St. Clement of Rome cites this letter in a letter written to the Corinthians in 95 AD. And before this, we don't find anyone citing the letter. So it couldn't have, couldn't have been before this. Um, although some scholars do maintain that it could have been re- written before the fall of the Temple of Jerusalem, which was 70 AD, um, since if it had been written after 70 AD, this event, is, this event would have been mentioned. Like, it's hard not to mention... Um, the fall of the temple if you're talking to to Hebrews. Um, in any case, the important thing is that this letter is accepted um, by the earliest churches. It's been part of the church liturgy, accepted by the church fathers, Clement of Rome and tradition. And its content is in continuity with um, the content of the rest of sacred scripture. Mm, and in fact, it was declared as canonical solemnly in the councils of Florence and Trent. So this letter has five different sections. The first talks about the pre-existence of Christ, um, his divine condition, and his creative activity. And second, it talks about the superiority of Christ as regards the angels. And then then it talks about the superiority of, of Christ as regards Moses, so some Moses was seen as like the head of the people of God par excellence because he led the people of God out of its slavery from Egypt um, back to the promised land. But Christ did so much more than what Moses did. He led the people of God out of the slavery of sin into the promised land of, of the life of grace, of the kingdom of God. And it also talks about how the priesthood of Christ is... Um, so much more than the Levitical priesthood. Christ is like the priest par excellence because um, his sacrifice is the most perfect sacrifice and he serves as a bridge between the people of God and God by being both human and divine. In his own personhood, the role of the priesthood is perfected. And also because his sacrifice is superior to all of the sacrifice of the old law, which is the fifth part. There are also several moral and ascetical themes, such as the idea that following Christ is necessary for salvation. And it also gives a lots of examples in the faith, which encourage the believers to persevere in, in the faith in spite of difficulties. And the theological doctrine of this letter emphasizes the objective superiority of Christianity to Judaism, or rather, to paraphrase it, that the Mosaic law is insufficient to save man who has fallen in Adam. And it also exhorts the believers to faith in Christ, who is the fullness of divine revelation. It expounds the doctrine of redemption through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the universal remedy for a universal need. It's eschatological, discussing the second coming of Jesus in the final judgment. And finally, 
it refers to Christian existence as a pilgrimage towards the eternal rest of God. So I would say that these are some of the major themes of um, the letters of St. Paul, the whole idea of sin and justification, parousia, the priesthood of Christ. Um, and now I'd like to dedicate like a few minutes just talking about uh, briefly the content of the other Catholic epistles. Apart from the letters of St. Paul, we also have four other Catholic epistles. One is the letter of James, and then we have two letters of Peter, and then we have the letter of Jude. So, as regards the letter of James, it seems that the author of the letter knows of the gospel according to Matthew. And it also underlines the need to not only speak, but also to live the gospel. It's interesting because um, Luther does not include this letter in his Bible. And probably because most of the content of the letter of James, exhorting people to live their faith in works, is something that is totally different from what Luther says, that only faith saves. And so um, the emphasis on works in the letter of James must have been something that he didn't like. And so he completely um, omitted it from his German translation of the Bible. And it also talks about some of the sacraments, especially the anointing of the sick, which is in the fifth chapter. Um, as regards the authorship of the letter, um, it could be a brother of the Lord, so to speak, a brother of the Lord or a pseudo-epigraphic work. Um, it's very common to use the name of one of the apostles when writing a work in order to add authority to the work being written. Um, and as regards the two letters of St. Of Saint Peter, um, they seem to have been co-written with a guy named Sylvan, um, who was also one of the companions of Paul. And it seems that the second letter came before the first one, because in the first one, um, yeah, it contains epistolar elements such as a prescript, a prescriptio, and a postscript. Um, and Peter comforts the believers in Asia Minor in, the tri in their tri tribulation. And the name Christian appears in the first letter of Peter. Um, the second letter is thought to be pseudo-epigraphic, again, not written by Peter, but it uses his name in order to add authority to the text, and in order also to, to emphasize its, its continuity with the thought of this author. Um, and it refers, it, it sends greetings to the Church of Babylon, which actually refers to Rome after 70 AD. Um, since it's like a code name for Rome, since it conquered Jerusalem, since Rome conquered Jerusalem in the same way that Babylon conquered Jerusalem um, in 586 BC. And, and we know that Peter died before the fall of the, of the temple in Jerusalem. So it could have been someone who followed the tradition of, or followed the, the writings of St. Peter, but who was not exactly St. Peter, who wanted to write a letter emphasizing this continuity with Peter. And it doesn't have greetings, um, neither does it specify a readership. And in fact, it's not strictly speaking a letter because it doesn't have the elements that the other letter has, the prescriptio, um, the epilogue, the greetings, and the farewell. Um, and its content is similar to a content that we find in the synoptic texts, in the, in the gospels, synoptic gospels. Um, 
with a similar language and similar, similar structure. And finally, the other letter, the other Catholic epistle is the letter of Jude, um, which is structured more as a homily than a letter. It doesn't have a postscript, the usual farewell that we find in the other letters. And its content is very similar to the second letter of Peter. Um, and it seems that Peter knew of the letter of Jude and must have um, depended on it in some extent because there seems to be some literary dependence um, among the texts. So that's it for the letters of St. Paul and the other Catholic epistles. And just to sum up all of the things that I've said, um, why are they important? Well, they're important primarily because in, in these letters we find a summary of theological doctrine in the early churches. Um, even before we find theological treatises on, on the faith, we have like these um, seeds of theological treatises, so to speak. And in these letters, where we find very profound theological reflections on what, what it means to be part of the church, what it means to be saved in Christ, etc. And we, all, we owe all of this to St. Paul. And apart from that, these letters also give us uh, an idea of, of how it was in the early Christian churches. What were the problems that they were facing? What were the... Um, main ideas that the that the apostles that the apostles wanted to underline in order to react to these problems. And in fact, this tradition of writing letters is something that has continued in in, in the Catholic Church. Up until now the the Pope um and the bishops in their own communities, they write letters to, to their faithful as a way to communicate to them the faith, to communicate to them certain pastoral teachings and it's very beautiful to think of how this tradition is something that goes all the way back to the um, apostolic period. And, and this is why these letters are important. So that's it for now from the Street Theologian. And again, if you have feedback or questions, you can always send us an email in thestreettheologian at gmail.com. And in the next um, episodes, we'll be talking about the church and the sacraments, which are pretty interesting and they, they do have a lot of um content that have to be <laughs> digested and understood well. So that's it. Thank you for listening.